verse 12 of the 12th chapter in a study that I've oddly entitled, Don't Be Scared of God. And I think it's very, very, very appropriate. I want to define what I mean by scared. Scared is that feeling that you have when you know you have been wrong and you're waiting for trouble. That is scared. But we do need to reverence the Lord. And that's why Proverbs 9, Proverbs 14, uh, Proverbs 6, uh, we, we need to have the fear of the Lord, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs 9:10 tells us. So there is a place for the type of fear that leads us to understand who God is and what he expects. But God does not want us to just be afraid of him. Because fear, that type of fear, that being scared, does not develop a healthy relationship. When people are that type of fearful, when they have that, in essence, scared atmosphere that they're dwelling in, rarely does it open up dialogue, rarely does it cause a relationship to exist. God does not want you scared of him. Reverence him? Absolutely. But be shaken in your boots every time you think about talking to him? Never. He wants you to be able to boldly come to the throne. And if there's something that's been wrong, we confess those things. He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. Amen? So we should not be scared of God. Even when he has hard things to say to us. Even when things need to be spoken to us as his children that we don't want to hear. We should not live in that atmosphere of being scared or terrified of the Lord. He means nothing but good. If he is for us, Scripture plainly declares, uh, Romans chapter 8, then who can be against us? Amen? So that shouldn't produce that type of fear that leaves you scared of what God's going to do, say, or think. The good news is you can help with that by doing your part, taking care of your end. And so let's ask the Lord and to watch over Pastor Chuck and heal him and pray for our time in the Word tonight. Father God, we just thank you for the glory of your Word, Lord, the, the power that it has to take our lives and examine them and put us under your microscope. And, and Lord, as we do that, we realize that we need to have a very healthy reverence for you and understand who you are. And Lord, uh, be in awe of that. But Lord, you haven't called us to a spirit of fear, but to a sound mind, uh, Lord, that we, we might walk in the understanding that you love us and your eyes are towards your children. And so, Lord, for our time in the Word, we commit it to you. And, Lord, as we do so, we pray that tonight you be with Pastor Chuck. Lord, again, we just ask you to miraculously work in his life and as the doctors go in and remove such a large part of his right lung, Lord, that lung that you created, Uh, You knit together, you fabricated, you invented from the things from which you've made this earth. Uh, We pray that you would just give him a tremendous result. Uh, We pray that he'd tolerate the surgery well. We pray that he would rest as he needs to, to heal. And God, we ask that you would just once again uh, revive him unto wonderful things for your kingdom until you come. And Lord, he believes he's going to leave this earth via the rapture. And so, Lord, we'd 
love to see that come to pass. All of us could go together. And so, Lord, uh, please heal Pastor Chuck. Be with Kay and Brian and Cheryl and uh, Jeff and Chuck Jr. and Jan, all the 19 grandkids and 30-some great-grandkids that he has, Lord. Uh, Blessed is a man whose quiver is full, uh, your word declares, and, and surely he's blessed. Would you bless him yet further still with a complete healing of his body? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 12 begins this way in Hebrews 12, And therefore strengthen the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight the paths of your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. And I love this, because you remember the context uh, last time as we were together, last week as we studied in the beginning portion of of this chapter, um, we need to get ready to run. There's going to be a battle that we're going to undertake. It's going to be tough. Uh, The coach is going to be on our case occasionally. We're going to have to work and endeavor to do that which is right in order to make those things happen. But it's not an unbearable task. And it isn't something that we should be afraid of. And I will draw you back to that analogy we began with last week, and that of the athletic endeavor. Uh, There is a beginning of that training process that no one looks forward to. Those first few weeks of a season of any type of sport that has any bit of athletic prowess in it at all uh, are generally called something not too terribly nice, like Hell Week. The reason being is your body's not used to it. Your mind's not used to it. Your skill sets haven't uh, re-engaged that particular sport yet. And so what happens during that first couple of weeks of practice is it seems like, oh, man, the coach hates me. I can't, yeah, I don't know why he even says those things to me. And furthermore, you begin to go through all the mental gymnastics. And, well, I can't do this anyway, and I'm worthless, and don't know why I went out for the team. I don't even know why I'm here trying. And so you can easily see now as this transitions from that getting ready to run to us being able to run and really being able to win is ultimately the goal. You need to not be afraid of the coach. You need to make sure that you're listening. He's going to say some hard things at times. And you need to take it. You need to do something with it. Not be afraid of it. I, I, will, I will never forget my water polo coach. For those of you that never played water polo, water polo, in my opinion, is the toughest of all high school sports. It is the most physically demanding and brutal sport I have ever played. Because a lot happens under the water that you don't see above the water. It's not pretty. But I remember my coach. My coach would stand on the side of the pool. He wasn't in the water. He was not treading water. He was not standing there after a two-hour practice ready to drown. He was not the guy that sucked in half the pool, that's laying over the edge of the pool, getting ready to, to die from asphyxiation. But he would look at you and he'd just go, Gil, you stink. You are terrible. And he would just mock you openly from the side of the pool until you, you, you're like, Okay, now I have some life because I'm going to kill you. <laughs> uh, you cannot say that to me. And I finally got the guts to ask him one time. I said, why do you teach, treat everybody like that? He says, because it gets every last drop of your very best out of you. Sometimes the Lord works in our lives exactly that way. He allows us to go through long and extended and protracted times of trial and tribulation and difficulty 
because he's working in us his good pleasure, and all of a sudden at the end of that, you are way stronger than you've ever been spiritually. You can handle more than you've ever handled in your entire life spiritually. God's doing that work in you. And so there comes a time, verse 12 says, to strengthen the hands that hang down. After a long practice, you're dragging. You can hardly make it across. You know, you can barely make it back to the locker room. To continue that analogy, your knees ache, your shins ache, your body aches. You can hardly breathe. Strengthen those things. Make straight paths for your feet. One of the interesting things that happens as a distance runner is after you've run a, a race, you don't exactly want to walk the long way back to the gym. You're looking for the short path back to the back to the showers, back to the street clothes, back to get out of the uniform. And that's kind of the picture here. Make the path straight. Take the direct route. Get where you need to go. And so that you don't end up in the wrong place because you're already weakened from the battle. Your hands are hanging down. Your, your knees are weak. You're, you're lame. You could easily injure yourself. There's another way to look at the end of this 12th verse, but rather be healed. There's something that happens in acknowledging your own weaknesses as you go through a training process, as the Lord is working in your life, as you make it through that trial, and you get out the other side and go, oh, thank you, Jesus, there you are. And you head towards the Lord, and you make a straight path towards Him, and you clear out all the stones, and you say, God, I'm coming to you. And then all of a sudden, you, you realize, man, God has a perfect plan in all of this. All that training and difficulty and hardship, those things that you went through, they actually had a purpose. And they're going to strengthen you and make you better than you've ever been before. It goes on now to apply this. To take what's there in the first 13 verses and now to apply it. And it says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And of course, we have holiness by grace and through faith. Amen. It's been imparted to us. But there is a part of our holiness that really one could say is subsequent to that which saves us. In other words, we're saved because we're already seen as holy. We're justified by God's only begotten Son who died on Calvary's cross. But there's a part of that holiness that then becomes practical. It's that part of our lives that we work out, practically speaking, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, as Scripture clearly says. You see, that holiness is something that in us actually increases in the practical application. Over time, we we really do become more like Christ, more like the Lord. And so God's at work in our life. That process that we just went through in those first 13 verses of getting ready to run and going through the process and then strengthening ourselves in those difficult times allows us then to pursue the things that actually matter to God. People say, well, does God care about my career? Yes, He does, because He wants to use you in your career for His kingdom. Does God care about me as a, absolutely as a teacher? God wants to use you in the classroom to be salt and to be light and to share the love of Christ in the classroom. Can, mom use, can, can moms be used at home? You better believe it. As a matter of fact, I wish more moms were able to be home And I said that very carefully. I mean able, because in our world right now, it seems like it's almost an impossibility anymore. I wish it were so, because that really is God's intent, that the mothers be there with their children and raise them, and and that it wouldn't be handled by 
you know, daycare or something like that. But yes, absolutely, God can do those kind of things. God's strengthening you for those processes, for those things that you're going to go through. Because none of those things are easy. It's not easy to be a mom. For any of you dads that have tried it, you're not very good at it, I can guarantee you. That's why you were not made moms. You were made dads. Every once in a while, the Mr. Mom thing can work. I've seen it happen. But it's rare, and it usually involves the death of at least one child. (laughs) Not really. But we don't make good moms. It's hard. There, There are things that God's called each of us to wonderfully uniquely that God wants to do with us. And he's strengthening you. He's preparing you. He's getting you ready for those things. And you can't be afraid that God's somehow mistaken you for someone else. Now, if you're like me, I have thought those thoughts. My God, you got the wrong guy. You didn't mean me, did you? Uh-huh. No. Uh-huh. I can't go anymore, God. Yes, you can. No, I can't. I've gone as far. Yeah, no, you can go further. No, I can't. You ever have those arguments with God? And then you tell him, I'm not going to do it. Coach, take me out. No, you're going in. But I don't want to go in. You have to. I brought you this far. The team needs you. You ever think of that in a spiritual sense? You realize that you have been uniquely placed on this earth as part of the team? The body of Christ. Your little part that you play, my little part that I play, is essential to the kingdom things God wants to accomplish here on this earth. And you need to be ready to run, and you need to not be scared when the coach puts you in the game. A little secret, because he's not up here tonight, but our son Austin, the very first time he got to start a varsity basketball game, the coach looked at him, the head coach, and said, do you want to go in? And he said, no. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, are you crazy? Go in. It's like, no. He just wasn't ready. Missed out on that opportunity. Fear can create in you the lack of desire to even get in the game. Fear can sideline you like nothing else in a practical sense. I have seen men and women sidelined from the kingdom things that God wants to do because they are afraid to get in the game. Because they're afraid the coach made a mistake. They're afraid God doesn't know what he's doing. And God's going to put him in too soon. We're not going to put him in enough. We need to trust the Lord and not be afraid of him. Notice what it says, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. As we're being prepared for the things that God wants to do in our lives, we need to take stock is what this actually says, looking carefully. It means to appraise. It means to look at and determine what is in front of you. Look very carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. You don't want to miss the major message here. And that is to these Jewish believers. They were thinking about turning around and going back. They were thinking this whole grace of God thing wasn't working out so well. We're going to go back to the easier road, which was Judaism. We had a whole bunch of laws and rules and regulations, and we could just kind of do them, and we did them. We knew where we stood. This grace thing, I'm going to shock you, this grace thing is at times hard, isn't it? Grace can be very difficult, and here's why. 
Because you're not bounded by a bunch of laws. You're not bounded by a bunch of rules. You're not bounded by a bunch of regulations. You're actually set free, whom the Son has set free. And those of you that are free are free indeed. You can also choose to sin. You can choose to do the wrong thing. You actually have to make some decisions on your own. In other words, you're getting put into the game not to be somebody who sits in the corner and just sits there. You're put in to play a part. So now the spotlight's on you. This grace thing can be kind of frightening at times. You mean I, I have to live out my own life according to the grace? Yep, you do. Nobody can live it for you. It's up to you. You need to lay hold of the grace of God and the plans for which God has intended your life and begin to work in them. Looking carefully, you don't want to fall short of the grace of God. You can miss it and fall short of it and fall right back into the law, right back into whatever bounds you before you came to Christ. Now again, is this one of those verses that says you can lose your salvation? I don't know. I don't believe that is what the author of the Holy Spirit was attempting to communicate in this particular passage. But I think, again, it's one of those warnings that says you need to take stock. Take a look. Find out what it is that you're doing. Because you sure don't want to miss grace. Amen? That means you need to do what God's Word says. Lest any root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. And by this many have become defiled. You see, we're going to get to this in a moment. It's not talking about bitterness. It's talking about unbelief. It's not talking about someone who's just simply bitter. It's talking about someone who disrespects the grace of God so much that, I don't like this grace thing. I'm going to go back to the law. I'm going to go back to my religion. I'm just going to go back to, you know, old beer 30 on Wednesdays. I'm going to go back to doing my own thing. I'm going to fall short of that grace. And that root of bitterness, that that longing for the old life, this phrase actually comes from a passage in the book of Deuteronomy. And it really pertained to the children of Israel as they longed for Egypt. There was a root that was in them, and it was a bitter root towards God because they were believing God, but now they don't really want to believe God because what believing in God caused them to have some hardship. When you look at the children of Israel, you can actually say that to some degree, when they were in captivity, they actually had it better than when they were in the wilderness. Amen? To some degree, that's true. Yeah, they had to work hard, but they had roofs over their head. They had mud-walled houses. They had food every day. They had jobs to occupy them. They'd obviously had children. They'd lived somewhat of a normal life, even in captivity and slavery. And now they're in the middle of the blazing desert sun with absolutely no one to take care of them. And they're being fed by God at night with manna. And every once in a while he throws in some quail for good measure. And they've got to run around trying to find springs of water so they don't die of thirst. One could say that the old way looked better. It's true for us in our walks with the Lord, too. And we can become so disenchanted, so afraid that God's made a mistake. Okay, well, now I'm this Christian, and, and, and my time in the world is passing me by. 
Family of God, I cannot tell you how many, especially men, have come into my office. And so I just feel like, you know, I gave up my best years and, and I didn't get anything for it. And anything you gave up is nothing compared to what you're going to get in heaven. But we do start to think that way at times if we've fallen short of the grace of God. If we've missed what the cross has purchased for us, it's pretty easy to fall short. And notice what it says. By this many become defiled. There are a lot of people that look back on their old life and they kind of hang around very close to that old life. And the word defiled here means to get dirty or to be sullied by. It means that you're, you're sitting there and you're so close to that old life that you're covered in the junk from that old life as it comes off of something else. In other words, you're, you're, you're like on the edge of a dirt racetrack and, and slinging mud everywhere, and you're so close that you're coated in mud. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. You see, you can become so hung up on the things of this life and so unimpressed by the things that are yet to come that you'll, you'll satisfy yourself with the distasteful things of this life and say, look, don't I have it good? And more on this in a little bit. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit a blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently in tears. And I want you to really take stock of that passage. God ain't playing at times. Coach ain't playing. Means what he says. Says what he means. Tells us what he wants to do. And a lot of people play around with sin so long that there's no place for repentance in their life anymore. They have become so corrupted by the seeking of sin-filled pleasures that they no longer have a place for repentance in their life, even though they actually, in a way, do want it. Scripture calls it the hardening of the heart. But the heart becomes so hard that that which once was easy by grace has now become almost impossible even by effort. Notice I didn't say impossible, but very difficult. The longer you play with sin, the harder it becomes to forsake it. That is the principle. Don't let anyone dissuade you. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Oh, God doesn't care. Yes, God does care. But he also has given you a free will, and he will force no one to do anything. He will try and persuade heartily. But he'll let you go your own way. He'll let you pick your path. So you can either take the straight path, move the rocks, get the stones out of the way, go the short way to Jesus, or you can try and go the long way, which is where everyone else hangs out. And if you wander around out there long enough on the long way, pretty soon you lose your way. And then it becomes very hard, if not impossible, to find your way. And once you get in that place... You may never find your way. Don't mess with sin. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, 
into blackness, into darkness, into tempest, and the sound of the trumpet, and the voice of words. Notice the polysendenton there. All of those things linked together, so it points us to exactly one exact place. It's Mount Zion. It's Moses has gone up to receive the Ten Commandments, the same mountain that the people could not touch, so that those who heard begged the word that should not be spoken to them anymore. They, they said, we don't want to hear it. This is the result of wandering around too close to sin. Eventually people, and you've probably, if you walk with the Lord for any length of time, you've bumped into somebody, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it anymore. Don't tell me about Jesus. Don't tell me about sin. Don't tell me about my problem. Don't tell me about what I'm doing. I don't want to hear it. They've been hanging around the mountain. They can look up there and see it isn't good. They've watched all their friends go by the wayside. Some of them are dead already. Some of them walk that path. Their marriages are ruined. Their lives are ruined. They've watched it happen right in front of them. They're going, don't tell me anymore. I'd rather not know. That's not God. God didn't want the children of Israel to be afraid. He wanted them to reverence him. When all that thundering was going on, he was trying to speak to them going, this is who I am. I don't want you to fear me in that sense. I want you to respect me is a better way to look at it. I'm a holy God. And so he says that those who heard, heard it, begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Verse 20 says, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight of Moses. He said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. You see, there's times when you see the holiness of God. You just go, I don't want it. I don't want to see it anymore. You know, I've actually had people tell me they don't want to come to church because they don't want to be convicted. I've had people tell me that. I don't want to come to church because I don't want to be convicted. I don't want to come to church because I don't want to see the holiness of God. I don't want to come to church because those crazy Christians at your church will tell me about Jesus. All the time. I don't want to see it anymore. I'm done. God doesn't want you afraid of him. He doesn't want them afraid of him. But God has a message to speak, and that message includes, I am a holy God, says the Lord. And I want holiness for my people. You can't escape that. If you're walking with the Lord, it causes you no fear. Matter of fact, it gives you great comfort. Because when I recognize who God is, and I recognize that apart from Him, I couldn't be the way He wants me to be, and I recognize that there's been such a great change in my life that I am being the way He wants me to be, I'm going, it's got to be true. Well, isn't anything I'd rather do? Do we all get frustrated at times, worn out at times? Oh, of course. But we don't give up. We get back in. We say, Coach, what do I need to do? We go back to the Word. We go back to prayer. We go back to the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And God speaks again afresh and new to us. Get back in the game. You need to go and practice some more. You need to go train some more. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. And so it begins to, to unveil this picture before us. 
that there's a purpose to all this training. And the purpose of that training is for us to be as much like Jesus as we possibly can be so that what comes out of our life speaks as much about the quality and characteristics of God as we possibly can. And at times there are going to be people who hear that message and go, I don't want anything to do with it. We need to help them not be afraid of God. We need to make sure that they understand that there is tremendous blessing and reward and wonder for following after the things of God. Romans 8.31 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up us for us all. How then shall we not freely give up all things? You know, there's times when God speaks to us. He says, you know what? Yeah, you've got to slim down. You've got to trim down. You've got to get rid of some of those things, some of the stuff that you've been doing. You know, I can tell you something you don't want to do before a long-distance cross-country race. Anything over about two and a half miles, last thing you want to do is down about a gallon of water right before the race. Because just like it does in the jug, it does in your stomach. It's like it goes from side to side to side. And so as you're running, all of a sudden you're like... And about a mile out, this thing happens to you. It's kind of like you've been flooded with the entire Pacific Ocean. And, and it's going to explode out of you. You don't want to do that. Good coach will tell you that. You lighten up a little bit. You take it easy on that. It's good for you, but not too much of it. For all things are lawful for me, Scripture says. First Corinthians, we're going to get there in chapter 6, chapter 10. Reminds us there's all kinds of things that we can do as the body of Christ, but they don't build us up. They don't edify us. They don't work for God's good in our lives. They don't help us run, is another way to look at it. They're not beneficial to us doing well in the race. We need to make sure that we're watching for those things. God is for us. He will give us all things, but he's only going to give us what we need. He's not going to overload us. He's not going to overburden us. This paints a picture of us desiring to get into this this challenging contest called running the race of life. Amen? We need to get into it. You can only be a spectator so long. And we're in the middle. We've begun baseball season. We're at the end of basketball season, both of which I happen to love. I don't know how many times you've been to a professional baseball game, but there's something there's something about the smell of the food and the sounds and the public announcer when you and uh, me and the boys we always take our gloves and we're down there and you put a glove and you walk into the stadium and you want to go play. It's like I want to get in the game. Could I just go down and take a couple of balls? I don't care. Just hit me an infield grounder. I, I just something. You don't want to sit in the stands. You want to get in the game. There's a reason for that, because you're, you're captivated by the whole process that that game represents. It's everything, and it's true for our spiritual walks as well. As we walk with the Lord, we're part of the body of Christ, and we see all these things happening around us, and people that are being used as a shortstop and the second base, and they're out there in right field, left field, and center field. You've got the catcher behind the plate and the pitcher on the mound. That's all true in a spiritual sense. There are people in all kinds of different positions in life, in our walks with the Lord, and as we're in the ballpark with the rest of the Christians that are out there, we're going, you know what, I want to get in the game. That's what should happen to you. 
I don't want to just sit over there in the sidelines and okay, watching my 8,614th game. You want to get in the game. And we can use this growing experience and this preparation to make ourselves ready. There are three things that are said here in, this, in verse 12 that remind us of that. Um, take a new grip with your tired hands. Tired hands want to stop working. There's something that happens when you just simply adjust your grip on something. So I'm looking at poor Rick here as a plumber. I, I did some plumbing o- over the weekend, and I can tell you, I have no idea how people sit under. Your body has to make unnatural pretzel-like contortions to get to the valves in the behind the sink. And as you're playing with those things, and your hands come out, and they will not even move to a normal position anymore. And and that's normal. Yes. Okay. So I've I'm been set free, and I and I grab hold of the and I can't even hold it. But I found something that happens if I simply put the wrench down and I regrip it. I can actually get a, ri- a grip on it again. But if I hang on to it, I have no grip. I need to regrip sometimes. I need to put it down, take a deep breath, and go. Lord, my hands are tired. I need a fresh grip on this thing. Spiritually, that has to happen in our lives. There are times when we get so intently laid hold of something and we've been doing it the same way for four and a half years and all of a sudden God says, Jeff, why don't you put that down for a second, regrip it, and let's start over. It's a wonderful spiritual principle. Take a new grip with your tired hands. Don't concede defeat. Just simply set it down. Say, okay, Lord, I need a new grip on this and regrip the thing and get back at it. Second thing, stand firm on those shaky legs. Same exact principle, little different persuasion here. Rather than dropping on your knees to defeat, you, you need to maybe you need to slow down just a little bit. Maybe you need to go as fast as you can go on those shaky legs. Maybe you need to cut it down to a walk. Maybe you've been running too hard, too fast, too far. And you just simply need to slow down and go, Look, Lord, I, I, I can only do so much, but I want to do this part well. So stand firm on those shaky legs. Maybe you're only going to go the ten feet, but that's all God wants from you. You don't have to run the full marathon all in five minutes. You can stop and say, God, just take me as far as I'm supposed to go. We need to stand firm and confident in that expectation that God has a plan and things that he's called us to do. And the third thing is to mark out a straight path for your feet. You know, there's something to be said for picking the right road. Amen? I can tell you, if you've ever spent any time in the high Sierras, there's a huge difference between the paths that you take. There There are more direct routes. If you decide that you want to climb Mount Whitney, for instance, you can get in the lottery and try and get a wilderness permit to climb Mount Whitney. Day pass to do that. And chances are you'll get it in about four or five years. Or you can go down to Cottonwood Basin Lakes. You can go through Cottonwood Basin Lakes over New Army Pass along the Langley Ridge. Hike right down and get the same way. It's actually five miles shorter. Also gains about 2,000 feet more in elevation. But it's a straighter path. Sometimes the best way isn't the easy way. It's just simply the straight way. So you need to make sure that you're looking out for the path that God wants you to be on. He may actually put put you on one that's tougher but shorter. 
straighter, but harder. Because we like to take the easy way, don't we? You don't believe that. You ever been in the high Sierras and you look at any of the steeper trails that are lined with switchbacks, you know it's right through the middle of them. The dummies from the top of the mountain that are going straight down, not taking the switchbacks. And the next rainstorm, it all washes out and the trail's got to be rebuilt in the springtime. We like to take the easy way. So in reverse of that, what God is saying to us, stay on the path that actually saves your knees. I can tell you what happens after you're going down a mountain that straight. By the time you get to the bottom, you can't even walk. If you'd have stayed on the switchbacks, you'd still have some gas left. It was longer, but it was actually easier on you. So both things have that potential to be chosen by God for the direction for us. We need to do what the coach tells us to do. Take that path that's been marked out for us. Also says here that we need to encourage those who are are weak. One of the things that happens, and again, back to the analogy, one of the things that happens in the sporting world is those who've been on the team for a while and have played in the big game and have been out there on the field when everything's on the line are an encouragement to those who've never been in that place before. You want that kind of leadership on a team if you're going to win. It's the same thing in the body of Christ. We have been around a while. are supposed to be an example to the rest of the team. It's going to take hard work, but we can do it. We're going to stay in this thing, and we're going to fight hard, and we will win. We need to have that kind of positive atmosphere in our team, which is the church, encouraging one another in the things of the Lord. Your example should make it easier for other people to stand firm. You know, we can go through our times, and we all do, and I'm picking on, picking on no one. Matter of fact, I'll just point at myself. There are times that, that all of us, myself included, get in that self-pity, that misery, that you know, lack of joy of, you know, well, gosh, I've been on the team for this long, and is this all I got, Lord, kind of thing. We need to stop doing that because it really discourages other people. Because when they see those of us who have been on the team for a while acting like that, there's no hope for them because they haven't even gotten there yet. We need to make sure that we're willing to, to pay the price. Verse 14, it says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without, without which no one's going to see the Lord. The question really begs to be asked, how can we be holy? We're sinful people, right? Well, the way we can be holy is by being in Christ Jesus. That's how we're holy. The the readers of this book were very familiar with the ritual cleansing and preparing for worship and all the things that happened in a Jewish context. And so as the author of the book of Hebrews writes these things, the Holy Spirit speaking through him says we need that holiness. As we're pursuing, pursuing peace, that's a holiness factor. Amen? Pursuing peace takes a lot of work, by the way. People think about pursuing peace. You don't think pursuing peace takes a lot of work. Look at the Middle East. How many years have the Arabs and Israelis been pursuing peace? It still hasn't happened. It's resulted in multiple wars. Pursuing peace can be very, very, very difficult, extremely hard, and it requires sacrifice on the part of the people who are actually pursuing peace because somebody's got to say, I'm sorry. So that holiness 
is exhibited to the world when we pursue peace. It's not natural to us. When I look at my life, it's not natural to me to pursue peace at times. It's more natural for me to just simply fight. I think most men understand that, that concept. Matter of fact, to some degree, I think, I think that humankind in general sees it easier to fight about something than to come to a peaceable conclusion. Because the peaceable conclusion almost always involves compromise, and that's the problem. People don't want to compromise. You don't ever want to say, I was wrong. Don't ever want to say, ah, it wasn't my fault. We need to pursue peace. Psalm 34, 14 says that we're to depart from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. Those are active words, by the way. Seeking, pursuing, takes effort. The word pursue here is actually a hunting term. It means to hunt down game. And if you've ever engaged in that endeavor, especially if you're hunting big game over very rough terrain, it's a long walk for a lot of nothing and about two seconds of terror. You're wandering all over the hills of Montana looking for an elk. And the elk's smarter than most hunters. And there they stand on the other side of the canyon mocking you. And so you walk down through another canyon up the other side. Now the elk's back on the other side because his legs are twice as long as yours and he's got four instead of two. You're pursuing that elk. It means that your family's going to eat or not. And there's a lot of effort to it and great diligence in, in that pursuit. Are, are we doing that with peace? Because that's a characteristic of God's holiness. He came to this world, in essence, to bring peace to mankind. Not the type of peace that the world sought after, but the peace that he came to give was the peace that frees us from the bondage of sin and death. The cross was hard. The most difficult thing that's ever been done on planet Earth was Jesus to the cross of Christ. Hardest thing that's ever been accomplished. Verse 15 says, and I love the New Living Translation for verse 15. It says, look after each other so that none of you will miss out on the special favor of God. And watch out that no bitter root of unbelief rises up among you. And whenever it springs up, many are corrupted by its poison. We're supposed to have each other's backs is what this is saying in a spiritual sense. As we're preparing for the great race that is our walks with the Lord, we're supposed to also have each other's backs. I can tell you something that you want as a long-distance runner. You want a training partner. There, is, there are very few things that are any more miserable than continually running 80, 90, 100 miles a week by yourself. Running with somebody makes that run a whole lot easier. You can talk, you can banter back and forth, you can let one lead into the wind, the other one follow. There are so many things that are beneficial when you run together with someone else. Scripture declares for us, woe unto him who when he falls has no friend to help him. The same is true in every endeavor in our spiritual walks. We need to have each other's back. We need to look out after each other. 
so we don't miss out on that special favor of God. Because there are things, let me help you see this very clearly. There are things that you see about me more clearly than I see about me. And there are more there are things that I see about you that I see more clearly than you see. Part of the benefit of the body of Christ is, is that we have each other's uh, a view of each other's lives that's different than the perspective that we have living it. I can watch someone else's life and I can see areas of danger. I can also see areas of strength. I can be an encouragement to somebody. I can't tell you how many people come on and just, God can't use me. I said, oh, that's so not true. That's the enemy beating you up. He's trying to boot kick you through the goalpost of life and you're letting him. Let me encourage you in this. And all of a sudden you see some things that that person never saw. And you encourage them and strengthen them. And take you back in the game. I'll run with you. Get back in the race. I'll run with you. We may not win today, but I'll run with you. Do that. Run with each other. Help develop that discipline. Help remove the obstacles. Uh, help to, to maintain that pace. You're going to get an opportunity this summer to watch the, the Summer Olympics. Watch those longer distance races. I know they're boring. There's a lot going on in those longer distance races. <coughs> You'll see, see people lead for a time, especially on the cross-country events. You watch the, the 15,000 meter where there's somebody out in front, maybe for five, ten minutes, leading the race, taking the wind in the face. Then you realize that there's two or three people wearing the same country's jersey and they're actually working together. There's strategy involved in the race. Same is true here. The phrase is translated here, special favor, can also be translated grace. You don't want to miss out on the grace of God because you didn't help somebody race and finish. You want to help them through the race. They may not make it unless you help them. That's the picture. There are people that God's called you to run alongside of. So I shared with you this phrase, a bitter root of unbelief. Please don't take it as a, a root of bitterness because that's not what it says. It comes from Deuteronomy 29, 18th and 19th verse, and it says there, Make sure that no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord. Notice this, whose heart turns away from the Lord our God, to go and worship the gods of the nations. In other words, turns away from the real God towards the gods of the nations. In other words, they already have a right relationship. They're turning away to a wrong relationship. Make sure that there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison, that when such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes the blessing on himself and thinks, therefore, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. For this will bring disaster upon the water land as well upon the dry. It's very clear what's being said. That to know the truth, be walking in the truth, be walking with the Lord, and to turn away from it brings a poison into people's lives that ultimately can destroy them. And so it's saying be careful about, about running, if you will, in unbelief. 
well, I'm just going to try this church thing for a while. You need to make sure that this church thing is a relationship with Jesus Christ by grace and through faith. And not just a church thing, because if it's a church thing, you're deceiving yourself. Whenever those types of things spring up, they're always poison. And it's interesting because even in the church you can see that. This is what false teaching does. This is what unbiblical teaching does. People begin to lay hold of those things. They go, ah, well, it's just a matter if I'm good or not. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and they've said, well, I'll ask them, do you, do you know where you're going when you die? And they'll say something like, well, heaven, of course, and I'll ask them why. He says, because I've been good. Well, if you think you're going to heaven because you've been good, you're in deep trouble. Because there's no such thing as good enough. doesn't matter if you've spent your whole life in philanthropy. You could have lived in favelas all over the world and done nothing but feed the homeless and still perish and burn eternally if your heart's not right with Jesus. We shouldn't be scared of God, but we definitely need to be afraid of sin. Verse 16. We'll finish up with verse 16 and 17 tonight. See that no one, and again I'm reading for the NIV now, the New King James says fornicator, but again we're we're using a specific Greek word here that applies to, in essence, all sinful sexual activity. So we would generally use the word immorality, but it includes all kinds of things. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights to his oldest son, and afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected and he could not bring about a change of mind though he sought the blessing in tears. Part of our job, notice what it said before, is we're to watch out after each other. We're to be looking over each other's shoulders. We're to be kind of checking out the pack of runners and see who's in there and see who's not. It's interesting to me that the very first thing that's said after that is make sure that there's no sexually immoral people among you. And it couldn't be more true than the day and age in which we live right now. Because I don't think there's anything that is so polluted, especially the United States of America, than this particular subject. Part of us looking after is to watch each other's lives and go, does that meet God's standards? For the church to have standards of morality that are no different than the world is a bitter root. For us to have standards of morality that produce nothing different than the world is a bitter root. And it is a place that I believe that principally the pastors that have filled pulpits in America are going to one day stand before God. Why didn't you take a stand? When that couple came and they, they proudly pronounced to you that they were living together in sin and you said, well, it's okay because it's a committed relationship, that pastor's going to stand before a holy God one day and say, why didn't you tell them the truth? I want to spend a couple of minutes because it's just, it's so prevalent, uh, the sexual mores of our society that, uh, that are the mores of today are not 
okay with God. Dating is, is, has become, in essence, trial marriage. It's like, well, I'm just going to see if they're physically compatible. You know, if we, we like each other, then, then maybe we'll stay in a relationship. And you know what? A vast majority of Christians do the same thing. We pretend that that's not going on, but that is exactly what's going on. That's destroying our children. It is ripping our kids off. And it needs to stop. Because if we won't stop it, I guarantee you the world's not going to. The devil's not going to. The devil's jumping for joy. Look, the church's divorce rate's the same as the world's. Look, the church's infidelity rate's the same as the world's. Everyone in the church is sleeping with everyone in the church. Same as the world. Yeehaw. They'll develop a root of bitterness. And it'll be like poison. And pretty soon they won't care. And you know what they'll have to do? They'll have to throw out the Bible. Because they won't want to hear it anymore. Remember what this passage said? They won't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear the word of the Lord anymore. I don't want to hear about I'm supposed to vote as a Christian. I don't want to hear about morality as a Christian. I don't want you to tell me I can't sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend anymore. I don't want to hear it anymore. And pretty soon those passages are conveniently erased. And the moment you begin to do that, nothing else matters. Because then it's a matter of what you want it to say and not what it says. Well, you know, our relationship is almost like marriage. I mean, we've been living together for five years. That is not God's plan. That is sexual immorality, and it destroys lives. And we cannot condone it, family of God. Don't let your children go that way. Dare, dare to stand in a holy and righteous manner and say, not on my watch. I'll risk losing you as a friend, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I want to address just for a moment something that I have to deal with almost on a daily basis, unfortunately. So that no one should underestimate the power of immorality. I will give you some statistics that are fresh, and these are from the FamilySafeMedia.com website, which is, a, in essence, it's part of Josh McDowell's research arm, but um, very broadly based statistical analyses of, of a number of media things. Right now, as it stands today, pornography in the United States, over 85% of the world's pornography is produced in Los Angeles County, 85%. Most of that in North Hollywood and the San Fernando Valley. It is a business that brings in 12 to 17 billion dollars in profit annually. That is greater than the profits of ABC, NBC, and CBS combined. 
a vast majority of those involved in that industry are underage teenagers. A vast majority of those are from fractured homes, destroyed lives, as doing nothing but destroying them further. There have been a number of studies that have been done in the last couple of years, and I'm quoting from one that was published by Dr. Jennifer Schneider, and it's, she's co-author of Cybersex, Exposed, the Simple Fantasy of Obsession. Statistically speaking, men who engage in looking at pornography on a regular basis, that's more than once a week, are... 92% of the time going to lose their marriages. 92%. That's a pretty high cost. It's more addictive than crack cocaine. More addictive than crack cocaine. Satan knows exactly what he's doing, and he put in his plan... Exactly what God said we need to look out for for each other, in each other's lives. Don't let anybody in your company become sexually immoral. 2003 meeting that occurred between the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, in other words, divorce attorneys. Two-thirds of the 350 divorce attorneys at that who attended said that the Internet played at least a 50% role in the destruction of the marriage. Specifically, pornography. As of July 2009, there were 320 million pages of pornography on the Internet. That's an increase of 1,800% since 1998, less than 10 years. Porn currently amounts to 15% of the total content of the entire Internet. 3.7 billion web pages. It is 15% of all of it. Don't think that the enemy doesn't know exactly what he's doing. Americans rent upwards of 800 million pornographic videos and DVDs annually compared with only 3.6 billion non-pornographic. So in other words, 25% of all movies rented in the United States are porn. One in five, basically, is the rough statistic. Hollywood produces around 400 feature films annually. The porn industry churns out 11,650 full-length pornographic movies annually. One in four American adults surveyed in 2009 admitted to seeing an X-rated movie in the last year. A 2009 poll by the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is Kaiser Hospital, said 70% to 78% of 15 to 17-year-olds said that they had accidentally come across pornography online. 59% of those, that 70 to 75%, said 
that it became a weekly or monthly habit after having stumbled on it online accidentally. Sociologist Diana Russell has written several books on this subject. And she said that immorality through Internet pornography is likely going to destroy the nation if it is not curtailed within the next five years. Make sure that those, there is no sexual immorality around you, near you, near your children, anywhere to be had, anywhere near the body of Christ. It's destroying our country. The economy isn't going to be the first thing that destroys our country. Our country. Immorality is. It's what destroyed Greece. It's what destroyed Rome. It's what destroyed the Carthaginians, the Medes, and the Persians. That's what actually destroyed them. And I want to, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here, and I want to be very careful to preface what I'm going to say. Just because there are no pictures doesn't mean that it's not sexual immorality. And so the number one New York Times bestseller right now, today, is a book by E.L. James, a woman, called Fifty Shades of Grey. It is a pornographic romance novel, and it has sold 14.5 million copies in the last six months. 92% of the purchasers have been women. Ladies, you're not immune. Be very careful what you put into your minds. Just because it comes with a cover and it's made out of ink and paper does not mean that it's not sexual immorality. And I realize that there are wonderful Christian romance novels out there, and I'm not decrying all of them equally the same. But what I am saying is immorality of every flavor, including the ones that people don't like to talk about, are capable of destroying you. Don't be afraid of God, but be very afraid of sin. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your protective hand over us. And Lord, we would ask that as you speak these truths into our lives, Lord, help us to guard, watch over, Lord, run with, prepare with, enable each other to run the race well. Lord, we don't want to have that fearful anticipation. We want to have reverence for you. We recognize your standards are high, that we're to live in holiness and pursue peace. And God, that we should not be uh, immoral. Lord, that we should not uh, look after the profane things like Esau did, Lord, simply looking out after our own, our own bellies, Lord, that that would matter so much that we would give up our birthright in you. And so God is your people. We renounce allegiance to you. We ask that you would forgive us, Lord, for those things in our lives that ought not be there. Help us to get a fresh start when we hit our feet on the ground tomorrow morning. We pray that this coming day would be just a new day, Lord, a new day where we've resigned to serve you with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And, Lord, to love and to serve our neighbors as ourselves. We bless you. We thank you for your word, Lord. We ask that you'd strengthen us now. Help us to have resolve, to get in the game, to play hard, Lord, to play our part.
And Lord, to encourage the rest of the team to do well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.